All right, let's be honest. How many of us have been in one of those situations this week even? <laughs> For me, it's always the hallway dance, like, no, you go, no, no. Or that, you know, that, that fist shake. And of course, here you got to throw the hug in too, fist shake. What are we doing? You know, it's, it's awkward. Uh, we always find ourselves in little awkward moments throughout the course of our day, or, or maybe even find yourself in awkward stages of life. Anybody ever been in one of those awkward stages of life where at the time you were as cool as you could possibly be? At least you thought so. I mean, maybe it was kind of like this. You know, you were as cool as you could possibly be, and nobody else realized it. I mean, this right here, my friends, this is like, oh, fourth grade Kurt, I think. This is as cool as I ever was in my life, and nobody else realized it. That was the problem. I don't know why they couldn't understand that the shirt tucked into the Bugle Boy pants with the elastic waistband was not the coolest thing ever, and the pose, I mean, come on, had it all. Now, sorry, ladies, this guy's taken now, but <laughs> just kind of have to, to deal with that. Hey, we are, uh, are so glad you're here this morning. If it's your first time visiting with us, or if, if you've been here since day one, or anywhere in between, we're so happy, so humbled, you've chosen to carve out some time of your weekend to be here with us. We're starting a brand new series today called Awkward, uh, if you couldn't already tell. Uh, and the purpose behind this series is how we as as Christians, we as followers of Jesus, can overcome our own awkwardness or overcome our fears or our anxieties when it comes to sharing our faith with other people. And I think a lot of times uh, that, that, that conversation about, about Jesus with others, it can be difficult, but often we're on one of two sides of the spectrum. I think most of us maybe are probably somewhere in the middle, but on one side you've got people who it's terrifying to talk to somebody about Jesus, especially in, unless that person asks you first. And you never know what to say or how to say it or when to say it. And it's just, again, it's always awkward and it's terrifying and it's best to just kind of lay back and not really say much about it. And on the other side of, of, of the coin, you've got over here the people who just cannot stop talking about Jesus. Maybe you know somebody like this. Uh, for me, it's my friend Zeb. Zeb's one of my, my friends from Bible college. He's a pastor in the Tulsa area. A few years ago, we went on a trip to New York City, a group from my Bible college and another college, and we did not go there for a missions trip. I mean, we weren't, we weren't going there to try and win people for Jesus. We weren't going there to do work for the church. We were simply going to learn. It, it, was, it was a class on how to do ministry in kind of a multicultural context. But Zeb was convinced he was going to win all of New York City for Jesus. And like, Zeb, there's like 8 million people. Like, yeah, I know. I'm going to do it. And I mean, let me be honest, I'm convinced if, if he would have had enough time, he'd do it. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. Zeb's the kind of guy, if he showed up here today visiting for the first time, no matter how good we are at greeting people, he would greet every one of you first. And he'd ask you if you knew Jesus. That's just Zeb. That's who he is. So we're telling him, like, Zeb, this is a class. You know, we're not there to talk to other people necessarily. He wasn't convinced. And I'm not kidding, folks. We were sitting in the airplane on the ground at Fayetteville, Arkansas. We hadn't even pushed back from the gate to start this trip yet. He's having a conversation with the people next to him. It's like five o'clock in the morning, and he's having a conversation about Jesus with the people next to him. That's just Zeb. He cannot help but tell everybody he sees all about Jesus. But that's not the case with so many of us. There's kind of this, this gap, and this gap has caused a fear in us or an anxiety in us, or again, an awkwardness in us. How are we going to talk to others about Jesus? 
And the more time goes by, the further the church and society and culture drift apart. And because of that, I think it makes it more and more difficult to talk about Jesus. And here's one of the reasons why, I think. A recent survey showed that 60% of Americans, particularly unchurched Americans, think that it's extreme or almost radical to share your faith with other people. That's, that's you know, three-fifths of people out there today think that it is, it's, it's radical now, it's extreme to push, push your views, so to speak, onto other people. But I think also, too, as a church, we actually are kind of helping to cause this divide, and I don't think we realize we're doing it. And I, I don't think we're, we're being uh, necessarily bad in it happening. It's just kind of happening. Because as a church, kind of without knowing it, we're putting up some barriers between us and society. And again, it's not like it's a situation where on the outside they're saying, well, the church, they're just full of hypocrites, and we don't want anything to do with that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying as a church, we've kind of started doing things in a certain way that's kept society over here, and we've started drifting further away from it ourselves. See, the first kind of barrier that we have put up as a church is a cultural barrier. Now, what do I mean by that? Every church you go to has a culture, a very distinct culture that is its own. Uh, just in the last couple of years, I've been a part of three churches pretty intimately, whether it's been a church I've been a member of or, or worked at or both. And every church is doing great things for God. I think doing things what you might even say the right way, but all three are drastically different. If you'd walk into my home church in Oklahoma, you'd walk into the church I was at in Arizona, drastically different. Again, not to say that we're right, they're wrong, they're right, we're wrong. It's just, that's just kind of the way it is. Every church is different. So we talk about our culture and maybe a cultural barrier we put up. We have to start as a church asking questions. What is somebody who comes in here for the first time going to feel? What are they going to see and experience? How are they going to receive the way we do things? How are they going to receive uh, the way we decorate our walls? How are they going to receive uh, the way we greet them? How are they going to receive the music that we sing and, and, and worship to? How are they going to receive the messages that are given? That's kind of the cultural barrier. And you may say, well, we're fine. We don't really have that barrier. Let's put that to the test. If you, if you think that's the case, sometime in the next few weeks, go visit another church in town and see how different they are than what we do. And again, it's not to say one church is right and the other is wrong. It's just different. Every church does things a little bit differently, and that's okay. That's kind of the culture that they have uh, cultivated. Another barrier that we bring up is a gospel barrier. Now, what do I mean by that? You go back a couple of generations ago, and again, church was still kind of at the center of society. That's not the case anymore. Again, we've, we've kind of drifted apart. But too often, people who have been Christians a long time, and, and myself included here, we assume people walk in the door that they still understand what we're talking about. And they understand the words that we use. And a good example of that is the word sanctuary. Now, I can say sanctuary, and you guys know I'm talking about this room that we're in right now. But somebody else, I'll say that word, and that doesn't mean a house of worship to them. It might mean a safe place. It might mean a place they're protected and, and kept from, from anything that can get to them. That's a sanctuary. So again, just the verbiage that we use sometimes creates another barrier. So when we say words like sanctuary, or we use phrases like born again, or, or sanctified, or even communion, we can't always assume people know what we're talking about. That's why every week when I do a communion meditation, I actually explain what we're doing. It's not because I don't think anybody in here gets it. It's because I never want to assume everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I don't want to assume that everybody just knows how to do church. In fact, I like to flip it the other way around. I want to assume every week there's at least one person here 
who's never been here before. And there's never been in a church before, and I don't want that person to feel lost by the way we are doing things and the way we're explaining things. See, I think sometimes we get so caught up in, in trying to be a Christian, and we get so caught up in trying to be a Christian the right way that we almost put blinders on and we lose sight of our, of our mission as a church. And we're too worried about being our own Christian as opposed to being a part of the big church. We lose sight maybe of our, of our mission here at our own church or the global church. See, here at Redwood, our mission, it's simple. Our mission is to help people say yes to Jesus. This is a mission statement that's been in place a lot longer than I've been in place here. What that means, helping people say yes to Jesus. I've, I've used this phrase, next steps, before. Maybe you, you've heard me say that. Wherever you are, you have a next step that you can take. And as a church, it's our goal, it's our hope to help you say yes to that next step Jesus has for you. So maybe you've been attending for a long time, and your next step, what we need to help you say yes to, is, is joining the church formally. Or maybe you've been a member for a while, and your next step, your next yes that we want to help you to, is getting further plugged in. So we want to help you say yes to uh, joining one of our small groups. Daniel talked about those earlier. Or, or getting plugged in to serve and volunteer once a week here at the church, and, and serve the church and serve, serve God through that. Or maybe you're like I was a few years ago, and, and you're, you're entrenched in life already, but your next yes <coughs> excuse me, is saying yes to God saying yes to, I'll follow your path, I'll step into whatever it is you want me to do, rather than what it is I think I want to do for myself. But wherever it is, whatever your next step is, whatever your next yes is, we always have to remember back to what our first yes was. When we said, yes, I believe in you, God. And then our next yes, yes, I will follow you, God. Next, I, I will make you the Lord of my life. That was our, one of our very first yeses, and I think too often as Christians, we forget that because we've been Christians so long that we kind of forget where we started from. And I know there's some people who I talk about mission statements or strategies or, or visions or focuses, and they kind of see them, them wrinkle a little bit and think, oh, we don't need to mess with all that. We just need to get to the basics of it. But we're not pulling this out of thin air. We didn't just get crafty and the elders say, let's, let's put some words together and come up with a mission statement. This came from Jesus, because Jesus gave us mission statements. Jesus gave us purpose. He told us what to do, and, and one of my favorite ones that he gives is one I've made my personal ministry mission statement. It comes out of John chapter 20. The night after he resurrected from the dead, Jesus appears to his disciples and he tells them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And I love that because he's basically saying, you all are going to continue on what I've been doing. So in the exact same way that God sent me, I'm sending you out. And when you start going back through the, the Gospels and you look why was Jesus sent and how was Jesus sent, you find three statements that he makes. When he says, I was sent, or the Son of Man was sent, and one of them, in Luke 19, he says, the Son of Man was sent to seek and save the lost. That's one of our purposes. One of our goals is to reach lost people for Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the church, one of the major purposes the church has. And folks, the only way this happens, the only way, only way I can reach lost people is if I start making them a priority in my life the same way Jesus made them in his life. You read through the Gospels and there's page after page of Jesus interacting with people that most of the religious establishment wouldn't have. <clears throat> Maybe it was a prostitute or a tax collector, or, or, or somebody who was just viewed negatively 
by the religious elite. Jesus made them a priority. He sought them out, and when they sought him out, he didn't push them away. He welcomed them in. He built margin into his life to give them time. He listened to their questions. He engaged them in challenging conversation. And I love this. He always met them where they were and then pointed them into where they should be going. In fact, I'm convinced today if Jesus were, were, were walking along the Grant's Pass today, he might be here right now for this worship service, but as soon as it's over, he's not going to hang around the church the rest of the week. He's not going to be up there in my office just talking to me or down, down. No, he's going to spend his rest of his week downtown somewhere. Maybe hanging out in one of the coffee shops downtown or, or playing frisbee golf along the river or I don't know. But he's not going to be around people like me. He's going to be around people who need to find him. That's where he would be. That's where he wants us to be. Why do I think that? Because that's what he told us to do. Uh, one of the last things that's recorded in the Gospels before Jesus ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, this mission statement that has become known as the Great Commission. Jesus tells those gathered around him, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Now, the imperative part of this statement are the words, make disciples. That's the ultimate part of this. You break it all down, those are the two words that mean the most. But to do that, he says, you go. So the Great Commission, it's not, hey, let's put up some flashy banners and get a catchy slogan and, and put some cool, catchy stuff on Facebook and open our doors and say, come on in, everybody, we're, welcome, we're ready for you. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is get out of your doors, get into the town, and make a difference, make an impact for Jesus. You've heard me say this phrase often, that for me, I think our mission, our goal should be to take Jesus to Grant's Pass, to bring Jesus into the world so we can bring the world, so we can bring Grant's Pass to Jesus. Yet too often, the longer you have been a Christian, and, and I'm, I'm blaming myself here too, I'm pointing the finger at myself, the longer you have been a Christian, the more likely you are to spend all of your time with other Christians, particularly ones who think just like you do. I want people who think on the same, same level as I do, uh, hold the same values that I do, and, and not somebody who's going to disagree with me. That's too often the case with us. And that's a, it's a good thing to share with other Christians, because you grow by sharing with other Christians. You grow from being around other spiritually mature people. But if that's all you do, if that's all you hang out with, you've actually withdrawn yourself from the very people Jesus is telling you to go and reach and to go and make disciples out of. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, it's, it's important to do that. It's important to foster those relationships. And I understand there are several verses in the New Testament that talk about being uh, unequally yoked, is kind of the phrase Paul uses, with unbelievers. And yeah, when you pull those out of the context they're written in, they can encourage you to never spend time with unchurched people. But if we're not careful, as Christians, we can start structuring our lives in ways where maybe it functions like this. You wake up and you go to, uh, to an accountability group or a, a small group of, of just a couple of guys or just a couple of ladies and you meet them for breakfast or coffee about seven o'clock in the morning. You go from there to your office and you're the only Christian in your office. Maybe some people go to church, they're believers, but they're not really Christians. They have bad mouths, they, they talk off color, tell dirty jokes. And so you kind of keep them at arm's reach because you don't want them to impact you and negatively influence your life. So you keep them at arm's reach and you only interact with them when you have to. They invite you to lunch, but again, you don't want that rubbing off on you. 
So you, you politely decline. You stay in your office instead, listen to some worship music and read your Bible, eat lunch by yourself. You finish your day doing the same thing. You go get your kids from their private Christian school because, again, you don't want them being negatively impacted by the world. You pick them up, you go home, you eat dinner, and you go to your small group study that night where your topic is, why are there so many lost people in our world and what are we going to do about it? Think about it. We don't want the world to negatively impact us because it might influence us. And we don't realize that works the other way around too. That if we get into our world, we can impact it and positively influence our world. Maybe we will rub off on them instead of the other way around. In fact, I'll just say it this way. It's impossible to influence people if you don't get close enough to them to impact their lives. It's impossible. If you don't allow yourself to get immersed with unchurched people and lost folks, we will never reach them for Jesus. That's one of the reasons I believe our small group ministry is so important here. I think that with small groups, we have such an incredible opportunity to get unchurched people to come and join us. I mean, think about it. you got lost friends or family or neighbors, they are much more likely to come to your house for a barbecue or to come watch a ball game or to just come for dinner, come hang out for a game night, whatever. They're so much more likely to come to your house than they are here on a Sunday morning. And, I, and I'm a firm believer that relationships are built in those settings. Uh, you've heard me say it before, relationships are built in circles, not in rows. So sitting around living rooms or kitchen tables or coffee shops or, or a diner downtown, you're much more likely to foster a relationship, and that, that relationship to grow than by somebody coming here and singing songs that they don't know and listening to some guy get up and talk for 30 or 40 minutes and just having to sit quietly and listen. Now, does that mean we don't want him here? No, not at all. Last week, we had a, a bigger crowd than we'll have probably all year. Every church in America was that way, probably bigger crowds than they'll have all year long. And the sad thing, and I'm not saying this to poke fun or sound sarcastic, but if all we do is focus on this room, on church on Sundays, we won't see those folks again until next year. And I'd like to start seeing some of them trickle back in over the next few weeks and months. But so many people, they come Christmas and Easter, and that's it unless there's some special event going on. So if we only get people in this room once or twice a year, we're limited on how much we can reach them for Jesus and impact them. I think those relationships we build in our homes, in our small groups, are so much more important because people start to see us and they start to see Jesus in us. To illustrate that, author Roberta Kine said this, I love this quote, let's give them what so few people will, our time, our hearts, our listening ears. I've discovered that people will most often come to love us before they love our Savior. In other words, Christians, we have to learn how to be the good news before we can effectively share the good news. How do we do that? Well, I don't have a script for you. I'm sorry. I don't have a script saying, here's exactly what you say in every situation. Because you guys know it, it, not every situation works the same. And I don't have a roadmap saying, hey, this is the perfect roadmap to follow. Because again, you know, different people require different destinations or different journeys to get there. So what do we do? I think there's a few things that we can just start looking inwardly at ourselves. We want to be more like Jesus, be more authentic and more real like Jesus. There's just a few things to keep in mind daily that we could be doing daily, that we could be changing about ourselves daily, and they're simple. The first 
You need to learn how to share your story. Share your story. The Apostle Paul was a great example of this. Paul's story was one a lot like us. He was in a bad place doing bad things. Acts 8, we read that Paul, known as Saul, was a Pharisee, and he was killing people who followed Jesus. He was just massacring Christians and and mowing down churches. And on the way to one of these churches in Damascus, Jesus meets him in the road, rocks his world, and Paul does a 180. And Paul utilizes this story. I mean, it would have been easy for Paul to say, man, look how bad I was. Look what I did to people. Look what I did to the church and how I hurt everybody. I can't possibly be loved enough by Jesus to be effective for him now. But we know that's not the case. Paul becomes this amazing force for good and this amazing force for God. But so often, we're in the same boat. We look and we say, man, I've hurt people. Man, I've been an addict. Man, I've been into some really messy, bad stuff. There's no way somebody can look at me now and look back at what I was and say, how can you possibly be real? But that's the case with so many people. Maybe you're one of them. You've been over here. You've been in this spot like Paul was. Not literally killing people, but maybe spiritually killing people or figuratively killing people. And look where you are now. But here's what I love about Paul. Despite where he came from to where he got, he told a story. And he told it often. In fact, the the, the Bible talks about it a couple of times. Acts 22, Acts 26. Paul tells his story to people. Tells the whole conversion story again. Says what he used to do. Says what Jesus did. And now says what he's doing. And you read through his letters throughout the New Testament. And he mentions parts of his story all throughout. And it would have been easy for Paul to say, Man, I'm so embarrassed by who I used to be that I can't possibly be effective now. But here's the thing, and I think Paul probably told this story far more than it's recorded. I bet he told it everywhere he went, because that's kind of what I get from Paul. He didn't tell this story to say, hey, look how good I've gotten. Look how great I am now compared to what I used to be. Look how far I have gone. No, he told this story to say, look what Jesus did to me. Look where Jesus has brought me. Look what Jesus has done for me. Maybe your story isn't that dramatic. Maybe, yeah, maybe you flipped 180. Maybe you're like I am, though, and your story wasn't a flip. Maybe it's just been gradual. See, I I don't have that dramatic story. In fact, I I joke that my testimony is pretty boring because I'm one of these, I'm what you call a Buick. I'm a brought-up in church kid. So every Sunday of my life has been in church. Every Sunday has been just going to church and learning about Jesus. So I can't even say, here's what my life was like before Jesus, because I don't know. I'm not saying that to brag, but I mean, every Sunday has been go to church, sing songs, listen to a sermon, go eat lunch at grandma's house or the pizza place downtown. That's just, that's the routine. That's what we did. And so for me, it was just a gradual thing. But here's the thing. That's my story. And that's, that's what my story is. That's who I am. That's where I've been. And this is where he has brought me. And I love the fact we can tell our stories, whether it's dramatic like Paul's, and it's a 180 flip, and, and Jesus pulled you out of some bad, bad stuff, or whether it is, is, is like mine, and it's just kind of a gradual move along, get closer to Jesus kind of thing. It's your story, and you should tell it. You should embrace it because it's yours, and it's nobody else's, and, and your story will reach people It's going to reach somebody who's in a similar spot now that you were once upon a time. In fact, I'll say it like this. You should be like Paul. 
Never hesitate to tell your story if it'll point people towards God. Never hesitate. Number two, you need to understand what you believe. Understand what you believe. I think to fully and effectively show people who Jesus is, it helps and it's essential to understand who Jesus is and to understand what you know and believe about Jesus. That's why I take my job so seriously every Sunday morning when I'm up here. That's why I spend so many hours a week preparing messages. That's why I spend time uh, just combing through his word or, or reading what other pastors or other authors have written about his word or listening to other sermons. Because for me, it's not simply enough to just know a little bit about Jesus, but I want to make sure that I'm sharing it in a way that, that everybody who listens understands it, not only understands what, but, but like we just did that series a few weeks ago, the why and the how. How did I come to this belief? How did I come to this conclusion? Why do I believe what I believe about Jesus? And I want to make it that's accessible for the first-time guest or, or somebody who's been in church for 80 years. I want to make sure I'm giving you something about Jesus that you can learn, you can understand, and most importantly, will change the way you see things and change the way that you do things. In fact, uh, I was told one time, and I, I took this as a compliment, said, you know what you know and you know what you don't know. One of my mentors told me that. And I'm like, well, thanks. I mean, I, I, I took it as a compliment, but I knew what he was saying. In other words, I'm careful not to talk about stuff I don't know anything about. And that's where I think is, a, is important. We're only as, as effective as a witness to what we know and understand. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, he tells the gathered apostles, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. A witness is somebody who says what he knows and knows what he says. But it's more than just knowing. It's more than just head knowledge. James writes in James chapter 1 that that it's about expressing your knowledge in action and expressing your knowledge and allowing it to mold you and shape you into who you are. In fact, James chapter 1 He writes this, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like somebody who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. In other words, James is saying that if you memorize scripture and you memorize a perfect theology and you've got an impeccable prayer life and you know everything you could possibly know, maybe I could be as great a preacher as possible or or as great a singer as possible or or whatever, but if all I do is is learn what I can learn and I don't give it to anybody else and I don't, don't help anybody else, it's like just standing in front of the mirror and admiring myself all day long doesn't do anybody any good. If all you do is stand there and it it doesn't change anything about what you do, anything about who you are, and anything about how you impact others, James says your faith is useless. But if you take that knowledge, you take scripture, and you apply it to the way you treat others and the way you help others and the way you impact and interact with others, it's not like looking in the mirror, it's like going out the front door. It's like shouting from the rooftops or, or just getting into the community and making a difference for Jesus. In fact, I'll say it this way. Knowledge of the word should always be a catalyst 
for impacting your community for Jesus. The third way to live authentically like Jesus is to have a genuine love for all people. Uh, when I went to Bible college, they had this, this kind of principle that's one of their underlying foundational principles. One of the, the original academic deans came up with it. And he said, who we teach you to love is more important than what we teach you to know. Now, the, 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 the college I went to, they pride themselves on being one of the top colleges in the country for teaching the Bible, teaching head knowledge, teaching you to understand the theological depths of Scripture. But they understand what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13, that unless you love the people you're supposed to love, it's useless. And Paul, basically, just to summarize, he says, I could be the greatest preacher ever, I could be the greatest theologian ever, I could have every talent imaginable to impact people for Christ, but if I don't love others, then it's useless. In fact, he says, if I have, don't have love, I have nothing. Despite all these talents, all these abilities, I have nothing. In fact, one of our core values here at Redwood is that we will passionately love our neighbors. And it, what that means is we don't get to be selective with that. We don't get to pick and choose who we love. We don't get to say, you agree with me, so I'm going to love you. Or we're related by blood, so I'm going to love you. Despite the fact that we may disagree, you're, you know, you're, you're family, so I, I will, of course, love you, but this guy who's exactly like you but not my family, not going to love him. We don't get to do that. Jesus doesn't tell us that we can pick and choose. It's universal. And I know too often that those who we disagree with, we don't show them love. Often we show them spite or sarcasm or, or kind of slandered, or, or not slandered, but slanted uh, comments. How do I know this? Because I have Facebook. I know so many of you do too. And I'll get on there and I'll see when it's somebody or something or some idea that we disagree with, we just hammer it. And we, we're relentless. And, and, and Christians, we're as bad as anybody. Maybe it's somebody that you disagree with. How do you interact with that person? If they disagree with you, say theologically, somebody of a different religion, do you just automatically assume things about them or do you still get to know them and, and find commonalities anyway? Maybe somebody is doctrinally different than you. Somebody at a different church in town. Maybe specifically one that approves of certain things that your church doesn't or approves of certain choices that your church doesn't. And they affirm that and you don't. Can you find commonalities and still love those people? What about politically? Man, we're politically divisive as a people. Do you find somebody who disagrees with you politically? Do you find commonalities? Do you find where you can still love that person in spite of the fact that maybe you voted for one candidate and they voted for another? I'll say it this way. If your candidate doesn't get elected, do you slam that person for the next four or eight years? Or do you pray for that person every day for the next four or eight years? I think I know the answer. And again, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this. It's hard to pray for those that you struggle against. But the Bible doesn't tell us that we get to pick and choose who we love. Jesus didn't. Jesus loved those, even though he was maybe getting on to them, he still loved them. He found common ground when he needed to find common ground. But love goes beyond just other people. We're supposed to love the church, the bride of Christ. So question, do you love the bride of Christ more than you love maybe your own personal thoughts and feelings toward it? Do you love the church, the universal church, more than you love your own comforts or your own opinions? Uh, again, guilty. <laughs> Every church I've been in, I've disagreed with what's going on, with the pastor, with the leadership. And, and sometimes I've said stuff to people. And every time, 
I've kind of got my, my, my seat kicked by somebody who wasn't even trying to do it. And they would remind me, it's, it's definitely a God thing, remind me, the unity of the church is more important than my personal feelings. Unity of the church is more important than my little nitpick things about non-essential items. In fact, I've, I found this out. There's not a church in America that I could go to where I'm going to agree with every single thing they do. And it's going it's to meet every single need I have. It's just not there. If I started my own, it would probably not meet every single thing I wanted it to meet. That's just the way it is. We get selfish in our minds, and we lose sight of the big picture. You read the letters of Paul. He stresses this over and over. The unity of the church is of utmost importance. And every, every letter he writes this, but I love how he, he mentions it in Ephesians chapter 4. He's going on about all the different parts of the body and how all the different personalities and, and all of the different uh, abilities and skill sets and, and everything that makes us different all comes together to make one body. And right in the middle of it, in Ephesians 4, he says this, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. I love he starts it and ends it the same way with love. We should live, um, we need to uh, let our, our, our love for the unity of the church outweigh anything that we love about our own comforts, our own desires, and our own opinions. And that's hard. And again, I'm guilty. I'm guilty as well. Number four, to be authentic like Jesus, you need to live a consistent life. Now, I'm not saying go out and be perfect. First service, I stumbled and said, not all of us can be perfect. Didn't really mean to say it that way. None of us can be perfect. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm not saying, hey, go be perfect. That's what you have to do to be consistent. That's not what we're, we're, we're saying. But what we're saying is you should live every day in a way that nobody can question who you are. You should live every day in a way that nobody can say, oh, you're not who you're claiming to be. Because you're not actually claiming anything. You're just being this person. Uh, I love when you read through uh, what Luke writes, whether it's his gospel or whether it's the book of Acts, and he gets into the trials of Jesus or the trials of Paul, and every page it's consistency. Every page they're answering things the same way. A professor in Bible college said, if Luke came back and wrote a book about you, would he write the same way about you that he writes about Paul and he writes about Jesus? What would he say about you? Luke's pretty honest. I mean, look what he says about the apostles and about Peter, how they ran scared. So what would he write about you? You look at consistency in, in the Bible, and, and one of the people that sticks out the most is Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, we, we see that King Darius has set up kind of a new governmental structure, and he's, he's put in these provinces, and in place of every province, he's appointed a, a, what's called a satrap or a governor. And there's 120 of these governors around uh, the country. And uh, over these governors, he puts in three rulers, three leaders, and Daniel's one of them. And that angered all of the other leaders, all the other governors. They were upset that Daniel was there. And in Daniel 4, it says this. I'm sorry, Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. 
Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So to get Daniel, they had to figure out, hey, he's serving God instead of worshiping the king. But they could find no fault in him. Uh, They couldn't figure out a way to trip him up because he was a good person doing what he was supposed to do. What would somebody say about you? Would they say, yeah, he's honest, truly honest. He'll just, he is who he is. There's no corruption in him. There's no uh, negative feelings in him. There's no hatred in him. He's not ugly towards anybody. Or would they say, yeah, boy, she, man, she's a liar. Man, she'll cut you from underneath if she has to to get ahead. You know, don't, don't trust her. You ever hear that about people? You ever say that about people? Man, I hope that's not the case with me. I hope that everything that I do, everything that I am, people can see And people can say, man, he is who he says he is. And who he says he is is a child of God, a follower of Jesus. And because of the way he lives his life, we see Jesus in him. They don't have to necessarily say a word, they just see it. They see who I am, they see what I do, and that helps point people to Jesus. Friend, it is essential that we reach our world for Jesus. It's essential, it's imperative that we reach the lost for Jesus. Because if we, the church, if we don't, nobody else is going to. Society's getting further and further away. Our schools aren't going to do it. The entertainment industry obviously is not going to do it. Our government's not going to do it. It's up to us. It's up to the church to reach others for Jesus. It's up to our church, the church, to make a difference in our community, in our state, in our world for Jesus. And the first step towards doing that is we have to be real. Our world can spot inauthenticity. It can spot fake a mile away. We have to be real. We have to be who we claim to be all the time. So here's your takeaway this week. Sometime this week, today, sometime this week, write your story. Just write it down. Write it on a piece of paper. Just challenge yourself to write down your story. Find out where you have come from and where God is taking you. Right, don't don't uh, you know, fall into the temptation of over-glamorizing it. Just write it down, honestly, humbly. Again, your story is your story. It's nobody else's. Maybe you're also a, a Buick like I am, or maybe you're somebody who flipped 180 from, from a life of, of whatever it was to a life of Jesus. That's still your story. And it will impact people more than you realize. It will reach people more than you realize. And let's just be be frank about it. It's the least offensive way to show somebody about Jesus by simply being Jesus to their lives, by showing them who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So write your story. Also, it'll help you. It'll help you get a better understanding of where Jesus has brought you, what he's brought you through, and where he's led you today. It'll help make things less difficult, less challenging, less scary, less awkward when it comes to sharing your faith with others. Share your faith with actions, not necessarily with words. Let's pray. Father, we are are so thankful, Lord, that you have given us this awesome responsibility to reach others. God, we are so thankful for uh, the calling you have put on our lives to, to reach others. God, I know it's, it's one that I don't take lightly. It's one that I don't take 
God, just, just simply. But God, I also know it's one that is challenging. I know that it is one that is, is difficult. It can be scary. It can be intimidating. Because God, sometimes we don't know how the person's going to hear what we say. God, we're scared sometimes we might say the wrong thing or look silly or look like we don't know what we're talking about. God, we don't know if just how the person will, will take it. But God, I ask you would give us the courage and the boldness to overcome our fears, to overcome our anxieties. God, you would put the, the, the opportunities in our path and let us know that they're there. Whether it's something we say, something we do, you would just let us be a light to point people to you. Let us be Jesus to the people in our lives so they would see him when they see us. So God, I pray if any of us have a situation right now in our lives, would you would, would show it to us and help us know what to do in that situation and know how to respond and, and how to act. God, I'm so thankful for this, this family of people here who love you and love your church. God, I ask you would, would be with us this week as we look for opportunities to make a difference and make an impact in our community. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.